Kanaard praat, maar nie swaard nie. Oké, good morning, my name is Adrian Almenga. I will be reading James 4, verse 1 to 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. This is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, this morning, we have the pleasure and the privilege of uh, Gareth uh, Nodia speaking to us. Uh, Gareth is an old friend and an elder at uh, Common Ground, Debenville. Gareth, we receive you warmly and with gratitude, and we uh, really can't wait to hear what God has put in your heart for us this morning. Go. Good morning, everyone. Really good to be with you. As Tawanda says, do that the other way around. We are old friends. Can I tell a story about Tawanda? When, uh, whenever I think of Tawanda, the story that immediately comes to mind, and you can ask him about the details, is a, is a he knows where I'm going with this already. I can see it on his face. Um, is a is a men's bry uh, that we did in the Durant's home, I believe. Uh, and he told uh, all the men there that, uh, that day that he was a Gracetarian. And uh, you can ask him afterwards uh, the context of that and, uh, and what that means. But uh, uh, I was so pleased to hear that he had joined you guys. Um, is there somewhere I can move to that's going to help with this uh, feedback situation? Maybe switch to the handheld. Testing, testing, testing. Is that a bit better? Uh, you want me to switch to the handle? To one, did you mind grabbing the handle for me? Thanks. No? Testing, testing, testing. No, I think they're asking you to give me the handle, the sound guys. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> 
For those, for those at home on the live stream that didn't hear that, Tawanda said, that's a sign I'm not supposed to share his old secrets. Uh, as as Tawanda said, my name's Gareth. Some of you might remember me. I, I have visited with you guys a few times before, but that was pre-COVID. Uh, that was pre this uh, fantastic venue that you guys have now when you were still in Tableview High. Uh, it was pre the beard. So if you were around then and you don't recognize me, that might be why. Uh, it was pre the limp, but that's only nine weeks old when I tore the ligaments in my ankle. <laughs> um, we were really looking forward as a family to all coming through this morning, and then uh, we had a water pipe, uh, water mains that burst late yesterday afternoon at our house, so my wife is at home uh, overseeing the gardener that's currently digging up uh, the water main, so I can repair that when I get home. So we've had some first world problems this weekend, because uh, we do get the privilege of actually having running water. Uh, my daughter, Eliani, uh, is here with me this morning. Uh, so it's really lovely to have her. I've also got two boys, aged 13 and 3. Let's pray and we'll dive into our text this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to ask that you would come in an incredibly practical and often painful topic this morning, that of interpersonal conflict, and that you would minister grace to us that you administer your love and your peace and your joy. I want to ask it flowing out of this morning. There are real changes in people's lives. Often these things are not cured overnight, but your spirit comes and gives us the tools and gives us the grace to make real change empowered by your spirit. And I want to pray that for people this morning that are going through conflict, that are going through difficulty, that are going through hurt, that they would experience your grace and real change flowing out of this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So James says, what causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Let's stop right there. James might just be the most practical book in the New Testament. Uh, last week, my good mate Anthony was with you, and you looked at the concept of wisdom. Uh, and wisdom can easily become a theoretical discussion disconnected from our real lives. But James doesn't let us do that. So last week he told us that anytime we're dealing with jealousy or ambition, we're divorcing ourselves from true wisdom. Because true wisdom looks like purity and gentleness and being open to reason, full of mercy, uh, a life full of good fruits. True wisdom looks like Jesus. And our immediate response might be, well, okay, that's great in theory, hypothetically, that makes sense, but what does that look like for my life today? And it's as if James is saying to us, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about conflict. Not the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, although interestingly enough, the words he uses here to describe conflict could be used to describe that conflict. Let's talk about interpersonal conflict that feels like full-scale war. And for some of you, maybe this hits really close to home. I don't know you guys closely. You're not my congregation, so I'll just throw out some hypotheticals. Maybe some of you had an argument with your spouse or your kids this morning before church. Maybe this weekend. Maybe for some of you, church is like a safe space where actually the fighting and the arguing kind of gets left behind and there's almost like this moment of respite because there's this facade that, hey, we love each other and everything is amazing and there's never any conflict and, and everything is great. And maybe this is a reminder that you actually don't really want to have. 
for some of you, maybe the times when there's peace in your home is actually just when silence has been weaponized or when everyone is just too exhausted to keep up the conflict right now. For others, it might be conflict at work, your boss, fellow employees, uh, subordinates, competitors. Maybe it's complete strangers, you know, on the internet, that road user, that school rugby referee. The worst is actually normally the people closest to us because they have proximity, they have intimacy, and towards them we have vulnerability. So, what causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Before we get to James's answer, let's consider the answers we normally give. My spouse acted in an unloving way towards me. My kids disrespected me. My colleague backstabbed me. That driver was inconsiderate towards me. That person online offended me. That referee robbed me. Now, it's obvious when I say it like this. We choose to focus outside of ourselves, right? We choose to focus on the other person and on the external circumstances. It's, it's obvious when we're in a nice Christian room where whatever conflict we might have is kind of pushed off to the side. It's tucked away and hidden from view, and we can dispassionately discuss this. Although even then, maybe for some of you, it might be difficult because you've been hurt, maybe by the person sitting next to you. It might be obvious in this room, but it's a lot less obvious when we're in the heated moment of feeling hurt by someone. So hopefully James is going to offer a better solution than simply don't just focus on yourself and get offended. And he is. So let's, let's dive a little bit further into it. Here's where we're going this morning. What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? James gives us a part A and a part B answer. And then he gives us a solution, which is formed of a principle to live by and commands to practically put this into place. What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that, what you, that, what, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Your desires. When you're in that fight, you are absolutely and utterly focused on yourself and what you want. You are so focused on yourself, you forget to bring God into the picture, James says. You don't have because you don't ask. You don't even think to ask God in that moment to come into that situation. But worse than that, James says, if it did occur to you to ask God to come into that situation, his answer would be no, because you're that focused on yourself, he would want nothing to do with that for which you're asking. In that situation where you're in that heated conflict, where voices are raised, where there's anger and animosity and hurt. We might think James is over-exaggerating when he says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. But remember, James is Jesus' brother. Jesus said, if you say to your brother, you fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. If you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. You reach that stage in the argument where all you wish was that other person was just not there, that they don't exist in that moment because things would be so much easier and so much more peaceful if that person just didn't exist in that moment, in that argument, you kill, you commit murder in your heart. 
And so the problem is not external. It's not out there. The problem is in me. But James is actually a much deeper thinker than we might initially realize. He identifies it's not just the way people treat you and external circumstances, but it's also not just the way you react. Beneath your reacting is a desire for something that you have that has not been met. Often these desires are unspoken, sometimes even unrealized, and they cause you to react the way that you do. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a parent-teacher meeting for my daughter, Eliani, and she knows I'm telling the story. I have her permission to tell the story. And uh, the teacher said, did, did Eliani tell you what happened a couple of weeks ago with a boy in the class? And I said, well, no, she didn't. And he said, well, the boy kind of tried to boss her around, and he's older, uh, a grade above, and a lot taller than her. She's not the tallest person. And she was sitting down, and he tried to boss her, and she said, no, you don't get to speak to me like that. And he got offended that she stood up to him, and kind of this conflict between the two of them. And so the teacher pulled them off to a room to the side, and they kind of had at it for a while, and the teacher was mediating but not resolving. And then they had to be separated again. And this went on for most of the day before finally he apologized to her, and the teacher made very clear to me she was in the right. She was standing up for herself. And so I went home to her. I said, you know, sweetie, um, you know, you normally tell me what happens at school. You didn't, you didn't tell me, you know, about the situation. She said, well, dad, there was nothing to tell. He apologized and it was over. And so I was like, wow, I was impressed. I was less impressed when she stood up to me the same way. <laughs> because it was disrespectful. At least that's the way I took it. Now, the Bible says children honor your parents, and so I have an easy out if I want it, but actually on reflection, I wasn't talking about biblical respect. I was talking about Gareth's respect, where what Gareth says goes, and you don't answer back, and you don't point out inconsistencies in what I've done or how I've behaved. You're the child. I'm the parent. You have to respect me. And so I responded very negatively to her standing up to me in that way, even though, as with the boy at school, she was actually in the right and pointing out something that was wrong within me. And so I re reacted negatively, raised voice. Why? because of that desire that I had for respect. As James says to this church, he would say to me, you adulterous person. That's such an interesting phrase. Here's what's happening when he uses that phrase. Adultery in the Bible is often used to refer to our relationship with God when we supplant God and his place in our lives with something else that we are holding on to as more value. In that moment, I desire her respect, according to my definition, more than I desire truth, more than I desire to love, more than I desire validation from God, because if I was desiring validation from God more than respect in that moment, I wouldn't have behaved the way that I did. That's called idolatry, where we put something else in God's place. We put that desire, whatever it is, and sometimes we know what it is, and sometimes we don't. We put that in God's place, and so suddenly we're behaving in ways that are completely unbiblical, unchristian, unloving, unkind. That's what is behind it. I want to tease her and say she must come up here so I can apologize to her, but I won't do that to you, sweetie. That's already happened. But you see how this works. That's exactly how it works. 
And James is actually hitting on one of the major philosophical discussions of all time. If you do a quick Google search, philosophers and desire, and you just click the first Wikipedia link, you'll see Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, uh, Descartes, Spinoza, Hume, Hegel, Blanchard, Moore, Mill. If you've done an intro to philosophy course, even if you hadn't, you probably recognize some of those names as some of the great philosophers of all time. They've all wrestled with this issue of what to do with human desire. The ancient Greeks and Aristotle in particular said, well, maybe we can take reason, like reasonable thinking, and maybe reason can guide desire so that the strong desires that we have, we channel them towards good things. That didn't last. Buddhism says that the root of all suffering is unmet desire or particularly craving. That's the the cause of all suffering. And so their solution to this issue of desire is that you need to extinguish all craving for anything in your life because that's what causes suffering and then you can achieve nirvana or you can achieve enlightenment. Moving into our modern Western way of understanding, psychoanalysis says that we need to talk about our lives through talk therapy and uncover the truths of our desires and articulate them, which helps to bring them forth in their truest form. Bring forth your hidden desire in its truest form, which may well be the best description of the world we see around us today. And that's not to knock uh, mental health or counseling or therapy, But just to say, we have to see, is this being done in a Christian way or is it just being done in a worldly way that is just going to enable us to more accurately articulate what it is that we want and more uh, articulately argue for the desires that we have? That's what James and, in fact, all of these philosophers are saying. Behind the external circumstances and the way that you've been treated is an expectation you have that has not been met, and that's what is turning this from a disagreement into a conflict. Because, I mean, technically, we should be able to have a disagreement without it being a conflict, right? I mean, hypothetically speaking, we should be able to disagree on things without it turning acrimonious and hurtful. I mean, let's just take a a, a silly or maybe sometimes a, a serious example, rugby referees. All right, so let's think back, not this last Saturday, but to the Saturday before that, okay? Uh, And my apologies to those of you who are not rugby fans, and some of you have to sit through this. My wife is glad she's not here. Apologies if you're watching online, sweetie. I think you are. Um, But um, uh, Reese Zammert got a yellow card last week, and and there was a big debate in the media during the week. Did he properly release when he made a cover tackle? And, And technically, this should be quite easy, right? I mean, we have the rules of rugby. We have camera angles. We have slow motion replay. Surely we can dispassionately discuss this without it turning acrimonious. How many of you know that's not what happened on the comment boards and the message boards below the rugby articles and social media, right? Because the people writing those comments have an unmet expectation. Maybe it's an unmet expectation for fairness from the referee. It's probably far more likely an unmet expectation that my side should win. And I bring that up because sometimes we have specific desires, being treated fairly, being loved, being valued, having your effort appreciated. And sometimes that's what's behind the conflict. It's not about the fact that you left the toilet seat up, gentlemen. It's the fact that you mindlessly inconvenienced your wife without ever appreciating the effort she put in to make the bathroom beautiful and to keep it clean. 
And she has a desire for appreciation. And leaving the toilet seat up might be a minor thing, but it's a reminder that you're not appreciating her for what she's doing. Ladies, did I get that right? So there's a desire for specific things, but sometimes it simply devolves into a desire to win. And that's when a relationship is in real trouble, where you've moved beyond fighting for feeling loved, appreciated, valued, respected, and honored. No, one or both of us are now just fighting to win. And if that rings true for a relationship that you are in, then it's time to get help. Life group leader, elders, counseling, maybe all of the above. But if you're in a position where one or both of you is now fighting to win, that is a very serious situation. So we fight and quarrel, firstly, because we have these desires. But James doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The second reason a disagreement turns into a fight and a quarrel is because we are loyal to the way the world does things. That's what James is meaning when he says friendship. The world tells us you should be able to get what you want. You deserve to be treated better. You should earn more money. You should be more respected. You, have, you should have an expectation of a certain standard of living, a certain kind of marriage, a certain kind of sex life, certain kinds of kids, certain kinds of co-workers. The desire you have, the picture you have of your life and your mental well-being is the highest good for you because if that's not being met, then as a person, you're not being validated and understood. That's the way the world works. And we so easily buy into that, which is nothing of what Scripture says. There's actually a third reason for our fights and our quarrels. I'll touch on it briefly because James doesn't spell it out in detail. But he hints at it when he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our flesh, our desires, the worldly way of thinking and the devil. That's what resists the work of God in our lives. The devil comes to seek and kill and destroy and he delights in conflict. He wants nothing more than for your marriage and your relationship with your kids and for this church to be mired in conflict and animosity and people not getting along and backbiting and backstabbing. You know, the horrible truth is that the primary way the world and the devil works is by telling us what we want to hear. It's by telling us what we want to hear. Hey, yes, I, I should have that respect that marriage, those kids, that promotion, that standard of living. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, come on, preach that to me, Gareth. And so, based on our own desires, based on the world and the devil telling us what we want to hear, we end up taking a simple disagreement and it becomes a conflict, it becomes a war, it becomes hatred, it becomes murder in our hearts. So, what's the solution? In verses 6 to 10, James gives us a principle to live by and then seven imperatives, seven commands to live out that principle. Here's the principle. It comes originally from Proverbs. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, shows favor to the humble. Now, I know that doesn't immediately track in terms of dealing with conflict. We're going to unpack that. James is saying our fights, our quarrels are caused by our desires for recognition, respect, love, validation, 
above the other person's well-being, the world and the devil are standing on the sideline cheering you on and giving you more ways to do that and you're aligning yourself with them. The solution is not just to humble your desires before the other person, but to humble yourself before God. Now, this is incredibly liberating. Okay, watch this. If conflict is caused by the desires we have, and we learned long ago, Aristotle's way of reason guiding our desires doesn't work. Okay, that's called world history and current events. If we go the psychoanalysis route, yes, we understand our desires more, but now we're just better at articulating them and demanding them, and we're better at winning the conflict. We can't go the Buddhism route because we know we can't suppress all of the desires in our lives. And God says, actually, some of the desires in our lives are good because they're desires for him and his spirit and his kingdom and his life. So what do you do? Do you just subordinate your desires to the other person in the argument? Well, that's not liberating. That's potentially harmful. Particularly if an argument has got to the place where harm has been caused. If you just make yourself a doormat to the other person, that could lead to harm. The general principle in Scripture is count others as more than yourself. But James brings incredible wisdom here because if you just simply bow before that person, they can walk all over you. No, James goes to a deeper principle and he says, humble yourself before God. That's why this is liberating. The other aspect that makes this so liberating is an incredible thing happens when you humble yourself before God. And that is you receive God's favor. When you humble yourself before God, God ends up on your side. So there's conflict, there's anger, there's raised voices, unspoken desires not being met, so the actual pain might not even be the thing that you're fighting about. If you've been married for any length of time, you know exactly what that feels like. How do you live by this principle of humbling yourself before God? Well, this is where these seven commands come in. Now, seven is a difficult thing to remember from a sermon, so I've condensed them into three categories and grouped the seven, seven commands into three categories. You're welcome. So, category one, recognize your role in the conflict. James says, submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So if the command is to submit, that means we are not currently in submission. If the command is to humble ourselves, that means we are not currently humbled. If a disagreement has led to raised voices and anger and even hatred, we're not in submission to God and we're not in humility. So in submitting ourselves to God, we ask ourselves these kind of questions. Is this disagreement underlying this fight actually worth fighting about, or is it escalating simply because I'm trying to win? Is this an issue God would have me take a stand on? That's the submitting yourself to God part of the equation. Obviously, in humility and gentleness, not with the anger that I normally respond with. And this can sometimes end a fight immediately. I need to withdraw because submitting to God means this is not a thing he would have me take a stand on. And now that it's dissolved to anger and animosity, I just need to step back and just walk away. The second way we recognize our role in the conflict comes after we submit ourselves to God. We've examined the issue. It is worth dis disagreeing on. But as we humble ourselves before God, we realize we've been disagreeing in a way that is proud and arrogant and disagreeable putting ourselves and our perceived needs first. 
the way you respond to this other person is looking down on them. You can't do that and be humble before God at the same time. Doing that is by definition raising yourself up. Humbling yourself before God is lowering yourself down. So the first part submitting to God is, is this even worth disagreeing on? The second part, humbling yourself before God is, am I being proud and arrogant and looking down on this person and treating them wrong? Or am I being humble and doing things God's way? So you've recognized your role. It's either it's not worth a disagreement in the first place, or it is, but you haven't been humble. Now comes the hard part. Change the behavior. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. So change your behavior. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Recognize what you are valuing that God doesn't value, but the devil values. Recognize how you are falling into the trap of the enemy. Is it pride? Is it self-righteousness? Is it a desire to be respected? Is it the belief that you're owed something? Recognize that every good gift comes from God. Stop looking to others to fulfill you. We're back to that idolatry thing again. That, that love and recognition and respect that you want so badly is because you desire it in your life. But in looking for it in another person, it's idolatry because all of your validation should be coming from God. It's the devil that tells you you can get it in other places. So you recognize where your desires are not godly desires, but that have been influenced by the world and the devil. And you go, no, I'm not going to think that way. The incredible truth is when you do that, the devil flees from you. Change your behavior. Wash your hands, you sinners. Hand washing represents cleansing yourself from what makes you dirty. Once you've recognized how you've responded badly, mistreated someone, looked down on them, said hurtful things, acted as if they're less than you, you have to cleanse yourself of that. Now you do that by confessing first to God and then confessing to the other person. You aren't necessarily saying, hey, you were right in the thing we were disagreeing about, if it's worth disagreeing about, but you're saying, hey, here's what I have done wrong. And that's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult, particularly if the conflict is still ongoing. And I will tell you now, if the conflict is still ongoing, let's not sugarcoat this, that person is very likely to throw that in your face and to actually use that against you. And you know what? You do it anyway. Because this is not about validation from them. This is about being right with God. So yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, they're very likely to throw it in your face. Yes, you might even lose the disagreement because you've acknowledged not that they're right, but the wrong that you've done in the situation and the way that you've conducted yourself. And none of that matters compares to being right with God. Change your behavior. Purify your hearts, you double-minded straighten out your heart and your thinking. If you're in this kind of conflict and you are a follower of Jesus, you aren't living consistently. You know this. 
But you've got to remind yourself of this. I'm being double-minded. I cannot treat this person the way that I have. I can't say that I follow Jesus and simultaneously treat this person like this. I have to adjust this. And so you're purifying your heart and you're changing that double-mindedness that refers to, well, you think you're following Jesus, but you're also acting in a way that is completely inconsistent with how he would have you love people. Change your behavior. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, on one level, this is classic talk for biblical repentance. In repentance, we realize how we have hurt the other person, and more primarily, how we have hurt God, and that causes sorrow to come over us. That's what this language refers to. But I I wonder if James might just have a little bit more in mind here in the specific context. How many of you have ever felt this way when you've been in a conflict? Well, I showed them. Ha, I made them look like an idiot. I showed them up in front of everybody. Sometimes there's a kind of perverse, self-righteous laughter and joy we take when we feel we've bested somebody or even hurt them when we quarrel and fight. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. James would say. So, submit yourself to God, humble yourself before him, recognize your role in this argument, change your behavior. Thirdly, draw near to God. James says, come near to God and he will come near to you. As I was preparing this, I was reflecting on one major disagreement that I was part of, um, very serious disagreement, that I, I feel like I handled about as well as a serious disagreement could be handled. And I say that not to lift myself up, but to let you know that disagreement happened in a pre-planned meeting with a mediator in the room. And so what I'm saying to you is with the knowledge of an argument happening at a specific time with a mediator in the room, I feel like I might have got this right. Okay, this is hard, guys. Let's not kid ourselves. And that was a serious enough situation that it needed to have a disagreement and it wasn't something that could just be dropped. And in the process, I was accused of things and I had to disagree with respect and not anger and conflict. And in a room where things were very heated and could have got very out of hand, I had to respond with gentleness and respect. Now, here's the thing. Most of our conflicts are not planned a week in advance with a mediator, are they? Most of them happen at three o'clock in the morning over whose turn it is to get up for the baby. And similar situations like that, right? And so I found I had to like prepare for this meeting and and other circumstances where there's been similar things, where it's been difficult conversations and you prepare for them and those seem to go okay. But man, if you you haven't prepared, so what that means is we need to be preparing continually by drawing near to God by recognizing that all of our validation, all of our love, all of our recognition, all of our respect comes from him through what Jesus has done and not the other person so that when that conflict comes or that disagreement, I should say, comes, it doesn't turn into conflict because I don't have this unmet desire from this other person, but it's been met by God. And the incredible promise is that as you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's the incredible, beautiful promise that James makes. But I want to show you something even more beautiful in the scripture. Because there's a verse that I haven't read yet. 
And it is even more stunning than the truth that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Verse five. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? Now remember, verse five comes immediately after verse four. And in verse four, James says, we've just made ourselves the enemies of God through our friendship and our loyalty to the world's way of doing things. See, here's what happens. In that acrimonious argument, in the midst of that hurt, that fight, that anger, whatever level of argument is happening on the horizontal, there is even a bigger breaking relationship on the vertical because you're making yourself an enemy towards God in the fact that there is this anger and hatred and these desires that you're seeking for validation in this other person rather than in God himself. However bad the argument is on the horizontal level, it is far, far worse between you and God. And what James is saying is in that moment that you are making yourself the enemy of God, he jealously longs for you. He jealously longs for you. Like a parent that sees a child walking down a path of danger and wants nothing more than to run after them and drag them and drag them back from that danger, God jealously longs for you and he has grace for you. And it is because of that that you can be right with him no matter what argument you've gone through, no matter what hurt and animosity there's been. And because of that, there is grace for you to go and confess your sins to one another. There is grace to break down that disagreement from conflict that feels like armed conflict and to repent of where you've done wrong and to find peace and joy and harmony and love in your relationships because it comes first and foremost from God when you are his enemy. That's the incredible God that we serve. That's the incredible God that has come and loved us and redeemed us. And because of him, you can turn the worst conflict and anger and animosity and marriage that seems like it's on the brink or beyond the brink or relationship with children that seem like they have no hope And yes, there's a process. It's not something that happens overnight. But that process is first and foremost a process that happens in our hearts as we learn to purify our hearts and straighten up our double thinking, turn away from friendship with the world, humble ourselves before God, confess where we've done wrong and draw near to him. I'm gonna pray and the band can make their way up to close us in song. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture that is just so timely, that is so practical, and so life-giving. We can look everywhere for solutions to conflicts, to broken relationships, to failing marriages, to broken relationships with children, colleagues, friends, and we're not going to find it. But in you, through what you've done in Jesus on the cross, we find all of the tools and more fundamentally, all of the grace that we need. First and foremost, to reconcile us to you, even as we, even as Christ followers, sometimes attach ourselves to the world again and do things worldly ways again. You come with grace and mercy and forgiveness and empower us 
to have relationships that can be filled with peace and love and joy rather than anger and animosity. Thank you, Jesus. I want to pray for anyone here this morning that this has really hit home to. I want to ask that you would help them take the step of connecting to community, to have somebody come alongside and walk with them in this difficult situation, a life group leader, an elder, someone that's doing pastoral care, to confess sin and to restore relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.